happening, everybody? So good to be with you today on this rather frosty, frigid morning. Goodness gracious. But we are in the Gospel of Luke still, and um, I was thinking about it this week. Uh, we as a church have a phrase that we use, which is, life is better with Jesus. And that is a phrase that has been important to me for a long time. Like I, I just in analyzing my own life, it was like, that's, that's the phrase that captures everything. But, but I think sometimes when we use it, we, we have assumptions of maybe what that means, or that it sounds too fluffy or too nice or too easygoing. And, and yet I think when I use that phrase, what I'm saying is that truly all of life is better with Jesus when it's hard, when it's easy, when it's fun, when it's kind of miserable. All of that, ultimately having Jesus in it really matters. And so in that sense, life is better with Jesus. But there's another thing I've been thinking about too, and it's the fact that part of what is true to that statement is that Jesus is kind of pesky in our lives, and that's better too. That Jesus is intrusive in our lives, and that is better too. And if anything, I would say Jesus is disruptive in our lives. He's disruptive to the ways and the values that sometimes uh, we do life or hold to in the things of life. And and this is true not just simply that, God, or that Jesus is disruptive to the disbelieving world or a lost world, but, but I found in my own life over 30 years of ministry and over nearly like 40 years of Christian faith, uh, he's been radically disruptive in the context of my faith, in the context of my religion, and in the context of my beliefs. He's always working and tinkering. I mean, the Bible calls this sanctification. That's our fancy word for the fact that he's always growing us. And growth is oftentimes uncomfortable. And I think that's even part of the challenge we begin to see here in the Gospel of Luke, and we've been seeing it for a while, and that's the fact that in this disruptiveness, Jesus is stepping into the world of a religious context. The first century Jewish world is very religious, and he's very disruptive. And in the disruption, they don't know quite what to do with it because he's doing things that they look at and they go, that seems unbiblical, that seems unrighteous, that seems ungodly, and you seem problematic, Jesus. So we don't understand how you can represent God, but you do things that for us and our religious heritage look really ungodly. Like that's a part of the deep challenge that's there. Where they look and they think he's a lawbreaker more than a law keeper. They think he's more impure because of the people that he spends time with than he's pure. If anything, they even struggle with the fact that he seems to be more supportive of the disbelieving world around him at times or what they consider to be a broken world, and then he's critical of their religious world. So this is all deeply challenging, and ultimately it's, it's disruptive. But if I'm completely open for a minute about this, I get it. Like, I really do. I, I look at that religious world that's dealing with Jesus, and I understand the level of confusion and frustration they have about him. Because if there's anything I know is that, man, when you read through the Old Testament, there is a lot that's said about God. There's a ton, right? And I love the Old Testament. Like, my favorite books are in the Old Testament. And when you read the Old Testament and you see these expressions and experiences of God, these statements of God, these realities of God and everything else, there's a very clear picture of that God. And then when Jesus rolls in, religion's like, we don't know how to make this guy fit with the way we've understood God up to this point. Now, to, to back up a little bit so I can help you understand kind of the dramatic difference between these two things, um, here's something that you have to understand about us as Orthodox Christians. We believe Jesus 
is 100% God. 100% God. So he's not a little less than God. He's not a smaller God. He's not under God. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And while 100% man is part of that equation, he's 100% God. So in John chapter 14, he, he says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in Colossians chapter 1, it says he is the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says he is the, the radiant glory and the exact kind of image bearing of the Father. He is all of those things, and so he represents the perfect nature of God because Jesus is perfectly God. But this is then where religion is going to have this challenge, this first century Jewish religion. They're going to have the challenge because, again, they're, they're thinking about God in one context. Now God shows up, and he looks like he's a different kind of context to them. Now, as a New Testament Christian, I think the whole idea of Jesus being God is very beautiful, very enriching, very fulfilling. The idea that he kind of comes down to our level and comes to commune with us, that's pretty radical. But for the Jewish religion, they're kind of looking at this and, and they're having a challenge because when you go through the Old Testament, you see that God there is completely unapproachable. He's unapproachable. And here's what I mean by this. So there's a scene where Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and he's like, God, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And God's like, dude, you wouldn't live through it. So what I'll do is I'll pass by you. You'll turn your back. I'll put my hand against your, your body in the cleft of the rock. And as I pass by, you can get this short little glimpse at my back, and that's all you can see. So, so God is so completely other that Moses can't even look at God. Elsewhere in the Old Testament says no one can look at God and live. In fact, there's this one little story about a guy named Uzziah, and they were hauling the Ark of the Covenant of God, which represents kind of the presence of God in a certain sort of way. They're hauling it on a cart. The cart starts to tip. The guy puts his hand up to stop the, the Ark from falling off, and God kills him. Right? The guy's trying, it looks like he's trying to do something helpful, but God's like, no, my presence is so potent, so holy, untouchable, that you touched it and you died right there on the spot. So this is the, the essence of the power and glory of God in the Old Testament. In fact, there was only one person, one time a year, for this little teeny sliver that could have some sense of access to the presence of God. So God creates this idea of the tabernacle, eventually becomes the temple. It's the space where God dwells in a region called the Holy of Holies. It's the most sacred space. And it was only this one person, the high priest, who once a year could go into that space after having gone through just ritual after ritual and purity system after purity system, doing all of these kinds of things so that they might for just a moment be in the presence of God. And even then, there's a little bit of a tradition that stated that they would tie a rope around their waist because if they would have missed one of the steps, they would have died in there and they just dragged the body out, right? And so that's... That's how they understand God. And so when you look at the Old Testament, who can be in the presence of the Lord, who is worthy enough to have access? Well, it's just, again, this very unique person, one in a generation, who's male, has no defects, comes from only one tribe, and has radical purity across the boards, right? All these rituals that they do to have that purity. That's the system. And then you get to Jesus. And Jesus is who? He's God. 
Jesus isn't a different God than the God that they were interacting with in the Old Testament. Jesus is God. But now here is this, this person on the scene, God in human form, and he's eating with and spending time with sinful people in his presence. I want you to just capture the dramatic difference there. Only one special person had access, and now the least of the least are receiving access. One guy once tried to stop an ark and touched it, in essence, touching like the presence of God, but now you have sinful people, sick people, immoral people, spiritually defective people, whatever it is, touching God. I mean, it's profound and it's challenging. I mean, I think about a scene earlier in the Gospel of Luke where there's this prostitute and she's there and she's at the feet of Jesus and she's wiping his feet with her hair, right? And right there, there's a religious leader looking at this and he's appalled at Jesus. He's like, he doesn't even know the kind of woman that's touching him. And Jesus is like, I know very well the kind of woman that is touching me. And I know that Deuteronomy says this is really bad but I know her heart. Or, or there's another woman that has a menstrual blood flow and she's been sick for a long time and she, uh, almost in a way that would be seen as disrespectful, sneaks in behind Jesus on the ground and touches the hem of his robe and she's healed. And instead of him scolding her for violating the law of Leviticus, he praises her for her faith. He sees her heart in such a way that he sees she was just desperate for something and power flows from him and touches her. Or there's another woman, and she's caught in the act of adultery. And religion is like, Exodus is clear, we're supposed to execute her. But Jesus stands between the woman and these religious leaders, and he's like, man, we all deserve a rock. We all deserve a rock. And so then they all walk away, and then he looks at the woman and says, I don't condemn you, because your condemners have all walked away, but go and sin no more. This image of Jesus is so radical and so beautiful, and so life-touching and life-shaping, but it's so utterly different than what religion expected of God. And that becomes the challenge. As Jesus is gathering his group of followers, they're kind of the unrefined, the unsophisticated, the unworthy, but these are his apostles. And simultaneously, throughout the Gospel of Luke, what you see is that he seems to be criticizing or warning or condemning those who thought, well, we're the holy ones. We're the moral ones. We're the godly ones. See, this is why I keep saying Jesus is disruptive. He challenges our presuppositions. He challenges our assumptions. And this is why we've titled this entire series The Scandalous God. Because like I said, there was an expectation that the Lord would come again, and what he did, it was going to be in the way that their religious heritage was thinking he should be. And then Jesus is different. Jesus is radically different than what they anticipated. And yet, that should be why we are so undone in worship and appreciation and gratitude. Because he shows us the heart of God in that way. And so right now, as we get ready for this morning... Um, I want to give us just some space to prepare our hearts, to pray silently where we are at, and I'll go ahead and pray, and we will pick up where we left off last week in the Gospel of Luke. So let's go ahead and take a moment together.
Jesus, I think about one of the commandments in the Ten Commandments. It's the idea of not making graven images. And I think my tendency sometimes is to do that very thing. In your name, in your reputation, to say, I'm going to put borders on what I think you should be or God should be or whatever else. Jesus, I confess that in my humanness, I want to shackle you in some capacity. I think we as humans are just tempted to do that in any number of ways, but I, I pray that you would uh, graciously work past our frailties, our assumptions, our insecurities, and that we may see you purely, that we may stand in awe of you, that we may be motivated by the purity that we see in you and how that purity can sometimes be very disruptive from what we anticipate. And so help us to be truly your people, to see you as clearly as you can be seen, and that from that we would live as, as earnestly as we can to show your fame, to show your heart, to show your grace and your power and your truth that transforms lives. Maybe, maybe we'd be truly transformed by you, not just white-knuckling our faith or trying to be dedicated and determined, but rather we would be desperate and we would be filled by your spirit and we'd be moved by the rhythms of your grace in a way that really does make our lives look like you. So we look to you when we need you and we thank you, Jesus, in your good name. Amen. So... Currently, we are in Luke chapter 16, but we are in the middle of a context that started in Luke chapter 15. And so in chapter 15, verse 1, what did we learn? Jesus is hanging out with sinful people and religion struggles that Jesus is hanging out with sinful people because he then looks unholy for hanging out with unholy people. That's kind of the challenge. And so from that, he told three stories. And the stories reveal, again, the heart of God, that God loves to go and seek and find lost things. And the moral of the story there for religion, as they're kind of criticizing Jesus for the crowds that come to him, the moral of the story is we will all do much better to love lost people than to loathe lost people. Because that was part of the challenge with the religious kind of elites, right? They would look at these crowds and they're like, if you're a really godly person, you don't hang out with godless people. And he's like, no, God goes after the godless. God goes after the disbelieving. God goes after the marginalized. He loves to seek, to find, and then in that to celebrate. And so he tells that story. But then last week we went into chapter 16 where having moved his attention from the Pharisees, he turns to his disciples and he tells a fourth story. And the fourth story is designed to say, don't fall into the trap that religion has fallen into at this point. Right? Don't be like the, the shrewd manager that fails his boss, who is God, in essence, in the story, uh, and, and does nothing about it. No, go like the shrewd manager and, and, and fix what's broken. Do it different than the way religion's been doing it. And, and part of the story there was he's like, you need to, in essence, lower your expectations that you have of other people as though they're supposed to behave right or do right, especially the crowds that are sinful and lost and, and disbelieving. He's like, why would you have these lofty expectations on those people? Lower them and befriend them. 
And in that part of the moral of the story was use all the earthly tools at your disposal to build relationships in a kingdom and intentional way so that you can demonstrate to them this life that you have, this transformation that's there, this possibility that exists. They can see it in your life because of proximity and from that man. You, you show, in essence, like the power of the kingdom that transforms lives. You want to leverage everything to that end. And so, in essence, the story is lower your bar a little bit so you can connect with people and then in that use all the earthly tools to build that kingdom-minded, kingdom-prioritized relationship, right? He says, now that tactic, while to religion it may look a little unfaithful, is in fact the most faithful thing you can do. And then he anchors his point, and that was the passage that Cassie read to us this morning. He says to his disciples, still after telling the story, if you are faithful in the little things, in, in essence, he's like, this crazy idea is a little thing, but if you're faithful in these little things, you will be faithful in the larger ones. But if you're dishonest in the little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, then who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? Now, we could get lost in the weeds of all of those statements there. It'd be easy to do, and, and we could dig that down for a long time. But, but I think I want to just give the overall essence of what he's trying to say right here, right? Based on what he's just said. What he's saying is being faithful to befriending and reaching, again, marginalized, disbelieving the other with kingdom priorities and being faithful to using this world's resources, not for yourself, but to invest into those kingdom-type priorities, that stands as the concrete proof that one really owns what this message called the gospel is all about. What this dream that Jesus has for the world, this promise that's being fulfilled that was promised to Abraham, he's like, man, when you really say, I, it matters more than anything else, I'm gonna lean into this more than anything else, I'm gonna do all these crazy things like you do them, Jesus he goes, that's proof you really believe what it is I'm about. So that's the heart he's getting at. See, and this is why it's important in the context of this section of Luke, again, religion, it thought it was committed to God's agenda. But what Jesus is saying is the proof that you're really committed to God's agenda is in what you, is in what you sacrificially and consistently do, not simply in what you defend or affirm. Right? Because religion thought they were getting the job done. And Jesus is like, man, you're, you're way off the rails from actually getting the job done. And so he's telling his disciples to do it different. And this is why I say Jesus is disruptive. He's disruptive. He's stepping into the lives of everybody and kind of blowing up their presuppositions. And so he's just done that with this story, and he's talked about money and, and everything else, and, and, and yet he's now going to take this idea of money, and he's going to move it a little bit into another subject. He's going to still talk about this iconic concept a little bit, but he's going to a different theme. Right? And, and he wants to try to make a point uh, about what God's doing in the world and how maybe religion is struggling with that and how religion kind of needs to change. And so to understand this a little bit, you have to understand there's this changing audience from chapter 15 to chapter 16. So it starts off, he's talking to Pharisees. 
Then he turns and he's talking to his disciples. And now he's going to turn back and he's going to talk to the Pharisees again. So there's this bounce back and forth and everything else. And so he now moves his attention away from his followers, directly the disciples, and he turns it back to the Pharisees with this new statement. It's still related thematically to money, but it's not really related to money. It's related to heart, as you're going to see. So he says basically to the religious leaders, no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this there, but it's in a very big context all about money. It's all about giving. It's all about storing up in heaven. It's about not worrying about this world's goods and the things that you want and the things you need. Just worry about the kingdom. So in that context, it's incredibly about how we value money versus God. Here he's using this as a springboard to confront something in the religious leaders. So it's really less a lesson about, oh, it's about money, and it's more about something in their heart and how they view money. Now, to help disrupt us for a minute, when we read this passage, we tend to go, yeah, if I love money more than God, that's an unhealthy thing. And I don't want to do that. I want to make sure that God is first and money plays the role it's supposed to. And and in part, we look at this and automatically go there because for us, we've heard that lesson a lot, right? We've even been taught outside of our biblical parameters in just our, our secular culture that, hey, money can't buy you happiness and money isn't everything. And so we're sort of immersed in the notion and we understand the idea that if I love money too much, it's going to be destructive and I need to make sure God is first over money. We get that. But we have to get in the sandals of the audience that Jesus is speaking to on that day. We have to get into the sandals of the religious leaders who are listening to Jesus' words. Because their understanding of what Jesus says is scandalous again. And they're going to struggle with his words. And here's why. This is what you have to understand. In their environment, when they thought about money... They didn't think money, if you're wealthy, is a challenge to God. Their understanding was that if you have money, it's proof that you are blessed by God. And I want you to lock this in because next week we're going to have a part two of this message and it's going to deal with a rich man and then a man named Lazarus and they both die and end up in different destinations and why that story is so shocking to the Pharisees as they hear it. But you have to understand it's rooted in this idea right here. Possessing wealth in their minds was evidence of God's favor. Not possessing wealth was evidence of God's disfavor. So for them, this is a major theological understanding. I'm rich because I'm godly and faithful. You're poor because you're ungodly and unfaithful. This is their understanding. This drove much of how they judged truly righteous and unrighteous people. And so Jesus is hanging out with poor people, destitute people, or crooks, the unrighteous, and Jesus doesn't seem to be as friendly with the perceived righteous who have some wealth and power and control, and so all the more they're dumbfounded by his words. And there's a reason for it. It comes from one of the major covenants of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is this covenant on blessing and cursing that God gives to Israel. So it starts in verse 1. And it says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world, and you will experience all these blessings if, if you obey the Lord your God. And it starts to go into a whole list of blessings. 
And in that list, here's some of the things. The Lord will give you prosperity and the land that he swore to your ancestors to give you, blessing you with many children. Why do you want many kids? So you can put them to work. That's how you do it. Numerous livestock and abundant crops. The Lord will send rain on the prop- at the proper time from his rich treasury in the heavens and will bless all the work that you do. You will lend to many nations, but you will never need to borrow from them. He says, if you listen to these commands, Lord your God, that I'm giving you today, and if you carefully obey them, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You will always be on top. You'll never be at the bottom. And then there's a shift in Deuteronomy 28. And God says, but if you don't obey, I will curse you. And there's a giant list of cursings. And it's going to be, you're going to be destitute, you're going to be poor, you're going to have nothing, and some of them get really dark. So the understanding of the religious leaders was, if you have wealth, it's because God has blessed your obedience. And if you have poverty, it's because God has cursed you for your lack of obedience. This is their framework. You have to, again, understand this. Because then you have Jesus rolling in. And Jesus is not known for his riches. Jesus is known as a guy that has no place to lay his head. So he's a poor guy, claiming that God's favor is upon him. He said that back in Luke chapter 4. And all the while, then, he's looking at the Pharisees who seem to have some wealth and some power and control, and he's telling them, God is displeased with you. So can you understand how this is challenging for a religious person then in the first century in that setting? Can you understand where they're like, no, 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 wait, 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 but Deuteronomy says we are blessed and therefore we are rich. You cannot say that you are the blessed one because you're the poor one. Worse off, what did Jesus say back in the, in the sermon that he preached on the plain? It's the famous sermon of the Gospel of Luke. He opened it this way. He said, blessed are the poor, but woe to the rich. When your theological system for your entire life and your entire heritage has been, no, that's backwards and opposite and wrong, and now you have Jesus saying that, you're going to struggle. It's disruptive. He's challenging the very core of your theological beliefs. So this is why Jesus is so opposed by religion. This is why even Jesus makes these statements because he knows it begins to get to the real heart of their hearts. And so he's disruptive, and religion just isn't going to have it. Verse 14 says, The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all of this, and they scoffed. Hopefully you can understand there's two things here. There's history, and then there's commentary. Luke tells some history, and in the middle of it, he gives some commentary. So what's the history? The history is what we just went through, that they thought, nope, if we have money, we're blessed of God because we're obedient people. And Jesus is like, no, here's a newsflash. That's not how this works. That's not the way it's really being leveraged or understood. And they kind of like, they scoff. Literally, it means they wrinkled their nose and face. They were like, you mad, bro? That's the way they're looking at this. How dare you say that? You're backwards. You've never read Deuteronomy 28. You don't know what you're talking about. We know that blessings equal Benjamins, right? And if you don't have money, you're not blessed to God. And in a weird sort of way, we actually fall victim to this as well, right? Like, we don't mean to, but we we sort of do that. So if somebody that we know and we love, they end up getting, like, a raise, we go, man, what a blessing. God's looking out for you. How many people are like, I took a pay cut. God's blessing me. 
Like, we don't equate it that way. I made an investment, I lost a bunch of money, man, that must be God blessing my life. We don't look at it that way. We don't look at losses as blessings. We don't look at poverty as blessing. We don't look at poor people and be like, man, God is clearly blessing their lives. They're homeless. We don't do that. Now, we sort of know that we shouldn't equal that to some kind of they're super godly or not godly, but, but we fall into the same kind of problem. We tend to think that the more you have, the more you are blessed of God. And so, as they interact with Jesus, and as Jesus is sort of pointing out this financial thing, they scoff, they wrinkle their face. They go, no way, you're not reading Deuteronomy 28. We got a proof text for ideas, man, and you're against it, right? But then Luke shares commentary as well. So while they're wrinkling their faces, and they think, like, Jesus just isn't biblical, because that's kind of what they're thinking. This dude doesn't know his Bible. What you see is that deep down inside, buried beneath all of their religious justification and biblical proof texting, their hearts love their money. And their hearts love their money because we tend to think, well, because they're greedy. Their hearts love their money for what money gets you. Money gets you security. Money gets you safety. Money gives you this fictional sense of control of the future. Right? So money can be a great surrogate for faith. Money can be a thing that you end up just trusting it more, um, feeling it's going to solve your problems more, whatever it is. So really at the core, it's still a heart that doesn't want to be trusting of and surrendered to God that's there. You know, but for the Pharisees, they think they're super God-honoring, but really they, they, they like the securities that their finances provide. And it kind of discloses something about their heart. And this is why last week when we were kind of looking at the story that we were, I mentioned this idea that God cares more about the heart than the behaviors. And I say that because if we were to travel back in time and hang out with the Pharisees for an afternoon, we would be like, those guys are super moral people. Like, they're really good people. They give to the poor because they did. They gave to the poor. They pray three times a day. They're, they're very devout in their religious devotion. They read the scripture way more than we read the scripture. I mean, they immerse themselves in the Bible, right? So we would look at them and be like, man, they're all over it. But their heart, their heart was the problem, right? And there's this weird sort of thing where it's almost like Jesus is hanging out with people that are coming to hear his message that are still actively sinners. They're outsiders, but they're craving his message. And he's like, I see things in their heart that is better than I see in your religious heart, you guys. Don't you realize what's really going on in your heart? You think because you have this moral system and these theological ideas and this commitment to the Bible that you really have surrendered your heart to the Lord, but you haven't done that. And so that's what he's confronted And then he sends another shot over the bow. Verse 15, he said to them, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. He knows them. He says, what this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Now, when I read that, there are two things that just leap off the page for me. One is obvious and the other is subtle. Right? The obvious one is one we're all going to see right off the bat, right? This idea of appearance of righteousness. It means nothing if the heart is wrong. Right? And, and that's kind of familiar to us. Like, we get it that the Lord looks at the heart. We tend to govern and judge outside appearance, but that's where God's looking. 
And so what in essence Jesus is pointing out is that true holiness and authentic righteousness and and pure godliness, if it doesn't flow from a heart that is rooted in humility and dependence and vulnerability, it doesn't mean a whole lot. It's just externalism. It's just ritual or religion. What he wants is something deeper. Right? What God seeks is, is the person that says, the truth of God, I want it to saturate my life so much. It, it, it transforms me. I look different. And part of that looking different then is oozing a grace toward those who don't believe, those who are not there in that spiritual space yet, and they just sense and feel the grace of God in our lives, that they can look at our lives and be like, that's what kingdom transformation's all about. You people are so different. You're so in tune with what God is doing in the world. You've surrendered yourself to the values of the kingdom, proving the power of the gospel of the kingdom. Like, all of that is in there, right? That's the heart that God is wanting to craft and mold in us. But religion is struggling with that notion, right? So he says, God knows your hearts, and, and they're sickly, and they're, they're broken, and, and you're not ready to even come close to embracing the values of the kingdom. And the reason at the core is because the values of the kingdom, that is not the world that they had built. They weren't looking for kingdom values, They were looking for some other type of system rooted in a type of moral externalism, but not a heart that's truly dependent on the things of God. And this gets into the subtle. The obvious was, again, God knows your hearts. The subtle thing that leapt off the page for me is when Jesus said, what this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Here's where I need to disrupt us a little bit. I think we'll read a passage like that and we'll think, well, right, what this humanistic world offers, what this disbelieving world offers, what this pagan world offers, or in their first century context, what this Roman world offers is detestable in God's sight. That's not Jesus' audience. Who's his audience? Religious leaders. What he's saying to them, and this is one of the most cute and and poignant things he says as he says religion the world you have built is detestable in God's sight right so first century Jewish religion he looks at them and says it's detestable right this world of religious pride self-righteousness Self-deception under the guise of moral or theological integrity. He says, nah, this is the stuff that God says, the worst of the worst. See, when I read this, I find it to be very sobering. Because it's amazing, elsewhere, Jesus talks to the religious leaders. He says things like this. He says, the hookers and the crooks are going to get into heaven before you. He says that in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, or verse 31, rather. He says to the religious leaders, Sodom and Gomorrah will be judged less harshly than you will. He says that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 24. Five times in Luke chapter 11, he says, you are the worst of all the generations that have come before you. Now, like I said, I've read the Old Testament a lot. There is a lot of messed up stuff in the Old Testament, isn't there? 
There was a lot of generations that were really substantially broken. There was generations that they were worshiping other gods and giving their babies to Molech, and, and they were c- completely just violent and abusive and destructive and lost the law completely and were doing their own thing. Man, you got Jezebel in the mix. You got all kinds of craziness. But it's that generation that was supposedly taking the Bible seriously and trying to be moral and follow the law. That's the generation that Jesus says is the worst, is the most detestable in the sight of God, right? Just personally, I I, I read that and I want to go, why? Why? I mean, there's a part of me that seems like but they look a lot more moral and more biblically minded than all these other generations. And like I said, I've read the stories a lot. So what's the thing? What's the hitch in there that makes Jesus say this of them? Now, part of the answer is, well, because they rejected Jesus. And I go, well, right. But what about Jesus are they rejecting exactly? I'm just being transparent. I, I really wrestle with this a lot. Right? It's, it's disrupting my understanding of values again. Because I would think that the religious people of Jesus' day were certainly better than the religious people 600 years before that or 1,000 years before that. Certainly they were better than the time of the judges, right? Certainly they were better than the time of some of the kings, right? Apparently not. So why? Well, next week, like I said, we'll unpack part two and maybe we'll see a little bit more but I tend to wonder if it's the difference between when you you just get locked on the perspectives of the law more than on the prescriptions of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is unique to the law, and we're going to see that next week. It's not that law is bad, kingdom's good. It's that law serves a function, kingdom serves a different function. But if you don't have those squared up, there, there can be destructive challenges, and you can build a world that's more harmful than helpful. Maybe part of it when I understand the religious leaders is that there is this pride in theology more than a humility in the truth. Right? Something goes on in the heart. I think for myself sometimes it's easier to cleave to dogmatism than dependency. Right? That gives me comfort, but it may not be healthy. Or it's easy to fight for the truth of God more than to perhaps long for the God of truth. Maybe there's a difference in there. I had a discussion with a friend recently, and he said, uh, Matt, you, you want to love people at the cost of loving God. And my answer was, I don't think I truly love God unless I'm willing to love unlovely people. Right? That's the real test for me, if I'm willing to do that. It's easy to love the lovely. It's tough to love your enemy. And I think God's like, that's how you prove you love me you're willing to love your enemy too. The leaders weren't there, but that's where Jesus wants to take things. And so I thought about it, I thought, man, maybe one of the worst worlds to build is one that exists for the name of God and the rules of God, but lacks the heart, the humility, and the grace of God. Like, like that might be the worst kind of world that one can build, because that was kind of the world that the religious leaders built. It seems that when I look at Jesus here as he's dealing with them, He's pretty emphatic. That seems to be the problem. Now, we can hear all that and go, well, that freaks me out, or that troubles me. I actually look at that and go, 
that gives me direction, right? It lets me know there's a clarity. There is a difference between what they advocated for and what Jesus was accomplishing. And then it just lets me look way more at Jesus where I go, I want to look like him. I want to long for him. I want to love him. I want to find my rest in him. I want to find my resilience in him. I want to find my purposes in him. I want to just completely track on exactly what he's seeking to accomplish and the way he seeks to accomplish it in life. I look at the world that he's wanting to build, a world different than the way religion was building that world. He was building this world in a coalition in such a way that lives were so radically transformed, so utterly upside down and backwards, people looked at that and said, that's what I want. That is altogether different, right? That, that's the passion that probably drives me, right? Just personally, at least. I'm like, man, everything I see in Jesus, I want to see that captured. I've been saying this recently in some other venues. I, I, I look at Paul more than once say, look at my life if you want to see Jesus. That's gutsy. How many of you are ready to go tell your friends, if you want to see Jesus really clearly, watch me really closely? You know what we tend to do? We tend to say, well, that's not realistic. That's not possible. Come on, we're flawed. We're fail. We're going to make mistakes. We can't do it. But I go, well, well Paul thought he was. Right? He thought he was. And more than that, Jesus says, greater things that you will do than I do because I give you my Holy Spirit. Like he said that. So for me, this inspires me. Right? It just inspires me. I'm like, all right, I, I want to do it like Jesus this way. I don't want to fall into the traps of a religious way that I am very tempted to fall into because that's way easier. You know, but, but there's something about this idea that, again, the, the values of the kingdom on display show the potency of the gospel of the kingdom at work. And that's what I long for. Because that's where I believe then a disbelieving world, a lost world, sees something different. And part of this is an attitude. As I was thinking about what's the difference between religion and Jesus and, and, and all of Luke, because it's been there from the get-go, it'll be there all the way to the end. And I thought, here's what religion tends to do in his setting. They divide people into two groups, good and bad. And then Jesus steps in, and he says, no, it's lost and found. When we work in good and bad, we think we're better than, than the bad. We're the good, they're the bad. When you operate in lost and found, you are slayed by humility and grace. And you are desperate to show the essence of what it means to be a found person. And you love the lost ones and you want them found. You're desperate for that. Everything in your life goes that way because you know faithful in little is faithful in much. Right? Dealing with God's stuff really matters for eternal stuff. And so right now, I want all of us to simply to bow our heads for more than one reason. For some of us, it's a moment of reflection. And when I say reflection, what I mean by that reflection, I'm talking to us as followers of Jesus, a moment of reflection that is also what we would call repentance. And repentance is interesting because it's a change of mind that then turns into a change of life. It's a change of perspective that then leads to a change of practice. And in some ways, what I would challenge us to today is, do we look at our world in terms of the good people and the bad people, or do we look at our world in terms of the lost people and the found people?
right? Because one has a heart that's different than the other. And if we were lost that were found, we should be the most humble to those who are lost, the most loving toward those who are lost. Because we remember, we were like that. We were that same thing. And it wasn't like we found ourselves. No, he found us and put us on his shoulders and carried us along, right? Like that whole thing. Saw us coming down the road and ran to us and hugged us, embraced us, and kissed us. Therefore, when we look at the world around us, we should be the most, most caring, most broken, most tender-hearted, most long-suffering because we understand the lost and found thing. But maybe some of us were struggling under the good and bad. Those liberals are bad. Those people with different ethics are bad. Those people who hold different values are bad. Right? This category, that category, this sin, that sin, bad, 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 bad. I'm good. That, 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 that hurts our ability to effectively share the gospel. I know as I've wrestled, there are certain groups, certain persons, I go, bad. That's not good. Lost, that's better. As God is the finder and takes joy in that. But also there's some of you that may be watching or sitting here this morning and you're like, I don't follow Jesus, but I'm, 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 I'm digging on what I'm hearing here. They're like Jesus comes to rescue sinners. He comes to find lost things and take them on his shoulders and love on them and kiss them and care for them and develop them and shape them into those who embody kingdom values that are so compelling. It's undeniable that, that there's a power of God. People that are so in tune with Jesus, they can say, watch my life and you're gonna see Jesus well. Like Maybe you're like, that's what I want from my life too. Well, if that's you and you're like, man, I, I, I want to follow this Jesus, it's a pretty simple formula. It's not really a formula at all because he's looking at your heart more than even your, your action right now. Here's what your heart, if you feel that, that thing in your heart that says, yes, I want to follow Jesus, then you go, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. But you're a savior and you're fine. Forgive me my sin. Take over my life. I want to be like you so that I can look at others and say, look at my life and you're going to see Jesus really clearly. And then Jesus, do the hard work of doing that thing in me. You make that your prayer in your way. That's, that's the connecting point between you and him. Jesus, we are all uh, needful. And I pray that in that we are all humble. And that in that we are then usable. Because it's not good guys versus bad guys. It's a bunch of lost people that were found by you that want to show your love and grace and care and embody truth and resilience in our own lives as we share that love and grace and care, that we would embody the difference-making life so that others who are lost can then come to understand the God who finds. We thank you, Jesus, in your name.